HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our master cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. My name is Southern Teague. And I'm Spirited Award nominee, Greg Benson. <laughs> uh, yeah, you are multi-spirit. You're, you're catching up uh, by by doing it multiple times with multiple uh, outlets, right? Yeah, qu- quantity over quality. That's the motto over here. <laughs> well, listen, as, we, as we've definitely said and felt the sting of before, uh, if you're up against Dave Wondrich, your best hope is second place. Uh, so congratulations again to our friends Dave Wondrich and Noah Rothbaum from the Daily Beast's uh, uh, Life Behind Bars show for winning this year's uh, Spirited Award from Tales of the Cocktail. Uh, um, they deserve uh, all the accolades that they can get. Uh, and we'll just hang back and be uh, second fiddle. Amen. Yeah, congratulations, guys. Your, your Smirnoff Ice is in the mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Four years in a row. Well, the cool thing is we can still say that we were nominated every year that this was an award, you know. Right. Every year that this category has existed, we have made the cut. So, uh, again, I think that's a pretty solid position to be in. You know, um, uh, you know, people might struggle to remember who won four years ago, but our name is in is on the marquee every year. So that's great. Well, it's also cool that, I mean, with um, <clears throat> one exception, you know, is when you look at the list of the nominees, it's not the same people over and over again. Like there's like there's new shows, there's new players in the scene. And it's just cool how many people have jumped into this space of saying, I'm going to, you know, turn my passion for, you know, uh, whiskey or bitters or beer or whatever into a podcast and do it with some quality and professionalism and heart. And it's, it's cool to see the new people that are showing up on these lists every year. And hopefully it, it continues to be a lot more new people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but, but with, of course us in there. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Damon's a pioneer. Damon, you started this show uh, coming up on 11 years ago. Um, That's right. So, you know, like, God, just because God. this award has only <laughs> existed for four years doesn't doesn't mean that we we as a, a, a show haven't, haven't existed for 
a long time. So it's good to get that recognition. We've won other awards, you know, we've won multiple taste awards. Um, You know, it's, it's not going unnoticed. So yeah, nobody over here is crying. Uh, And just to reiterate the, uh, the origin story of the show, when I was a guest on the main course, which is the first show for heritage radio, I finished the show a couple days later, Patrick Martin, the uh, founder of Heritage Foods and Heritage uh, Radio Network, calls me up and he says, hey, man, had really great feedback for your show. When we realized we don't have like a boozy show. Um, they had a you know, the beer show and a wine series, but nothing about cocktails and spirits. And so he asked me if I would be interested in doing it. And I you know, said, well, how much does it pay? He said, nothing. And I said, perfect, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's here about, we are today in the same boat. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's really about doing it because you want to do it, not because of any. You know, it's a lot of times. Uh, you know, we work in a, a thankless uh, industry. Um, you know, it's it, the hospitality industry is driven by you wanting to be hospitable. You know, that's that's what it is. So, it's as much for us too on the the educational side. We get to interview all kinds of wonderful people and visit lots of great spots, and you know, it's it's good for us too. It's not just a it is a labor of love, but there is there's a payoff for it, and it's not you know it doesn't have to be a crystal plate <laughs> to say. Yeah, that. yeah, I a thousand percent agree. You know, uh, you invited me on uh, the show was already a favorite of mine to listen to. You invited me on to to co-host with you, and and I, I kind of felt the same way. Uh, you know, I did it because I enjoy it, and I still enjoy it. It's my of all the many things I do as a um, you know running businesses and whatever. This is the thing that I consider still to be my favorite thing that I do. Thanks, and it's a real so happy to. I'm happy to be here. <clears throat> yeah, and it's and there's something to be said about doing something for like the love of the game. Like I'm sort of I'm yeah. I'm hearing you two speak, and I'm. Reminded of, um, you know, we get because of this show, like a lot of our guests come on and they will very, very generously send us some samples so that we don't have to sit here without an alcoholic beverage in our hands <laughs> at noon on a Wednesday when we do this show, which is very thoughtful of them. And I remember one day I got a package from um, someone who was going to be on the show. I honestly can't remember who. And uh, a former roommate of mine who um, we have since parted ways, but he kind of looked at me and he goes, he gets sort of jealous seeing me unwrap. I think it was a really, really nice bottle of uh, tequila. And he goes, Whoa, like, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you get to this point in your life where people just like send you these things for free? And I'm like, you do it every week for years for no pay. (laughs) Like that's how you get to this point. Um, and you know, it's, it's not, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not without some, some rewards. Obviously, I liked getting a nice bottle of tequila, but getting to talk to the people that made that was just as much of a reward. Getting to know what went into that was just as much of a reward. And like y'all were saying, it's cool to be in this field where we just get this opportunity to pull cool people in. Like, hey, you know, you, I'm strong arming you into a conversation about this fascinating thing that you're an expert in for an hour. Like, go. What do you What do you got for us? Yeah. Yeah. Plus the sheer amount of education that I've received from the show as a listener for years. And then as a, as a co-host, the people that we have on, I learn something from every day. And that's probably going to be triply true today uh, because we've got a great guest on that deals in a world that's still pretty foreign to me. Greg, you want to bring him into the room? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, joining us from 
Delaware, we have Sam Collagione of Dogfish Head. Sam, thank you so, so much for joining us. The hesitation you heard in my voice there was me realizing that I've only ever seen your name written down and not actually said out loud. That's why I passed the ball to you. I was realizing <laughs> I don't know this last name either. <laughs> how did, how did I do, it, Sam? Man. Was I close? Yes. You awesome. So yeah, you Sam from Dogfish Head. Thank you so much for joining us, man. It's a real right. pleasure to have you here. Craig, Souther, Damon, I'm psyched to be here. Heck yeah. yeah, really good to have you and talk about a, a, a category that for me is is you know pretty foreign. Honestly, uh, I, I I'm on record many times as saying you know the beers that I drink are kind of uh, you know everybody calls them lawnmower beers. I call them hammock beers because I'm not so interested in a lawnmower as I am a hammock. <laughs> um, you know, I just want something to you know be the mouthwash as I always call it. Um, but you deal you deal with a lot of things that that are the the meat of the matter. This is the center plate item. Uh, so I want to talk to you about those things that you're doing. So really glad to have you here. I'm going to learn something today. I'm sure I am too. Excited to be here. Well, I, I I'd love to kick it off because you've been in this game for a while since uh, 1995. Do I have that right? Yeah, we we had the dubious distinction when we opened in 1995 of literally being the smallest of about 600 commercial breweries in America that existed in in that era. The irony is that now in 2021, I'm sure there are people who are fighting for the title of being the smallest brewery. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's cooler than being the biggest is being the smallest, and uh, it's been amazing to watch this community of craft brewers flourish in the 26 years that we opened. So for context, when we opened 26 years ago, there was, like I said, about 600 commercial breweries in America. And today there's almost 9,000. So pretty incredible growth of, of a vibrant community. When you were, you were sort of riding, uh, you know, you, well, you weren't riding a wave in a lot of ways. You were sort of driving the waves, you know, you were sort of the King Neptune behind a lot of waves in the craft beer industry and, and circling back to, Souther's weird um, uh, uh, <laughs> decision not to really go after the hoppy stuff, considering he's Mr. Bitters over here. You know, you were one of the first people who were sort of on that front of doing that really big, hoppy, bold, bitter beer style. Was that a hard sell to a country that loves its soda in 1995? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, like uh, you know, you know, you guys have, a, 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 you know, a New York City's obviously a, a dear to you guys. And uh, I graduated from college and I started working at a beer bar up by Columbia in 92, fell in love with drinking good beer when I was a waiter at that restaurant. And, and for my shift drinks, you know, I'd have Chimay and Sierra Celebration and my mind was blown because I, I drank, you know, just the cheapest beer possible in college. So that's when I had kind of my epiphany moment. And within months, I started homebrewing. And within months of my first homebrew, I was walking to the New York City Public Library and started writing the business plan for Dogfish Head. And, and I knew, you know, I was 24 years old that I wasn't going to even be able to compete with the great first-gen craft brewers that were out there, Sierra Nevada, Sam Adams. So I was like, all right, what, what could be my niche? And so it really came from, you know, studying people like Alice Waters and James Beard and saying, well, you know, instead of genuflecting to modern European beer styles, let's use the entire sort of culinary universe as a chef would to do culinary inspired beers. So that's really what set us on our journey. That's amazing, man. And I know that a lot of, you know, <clears throat> I mean, Jesus, you, you can walk into any supermarket and see, I would be stunned if there was just one beer that described itself as culinary inspired. Now uh, that's, that's become such a, 
a big trend to, as you say, sort of use all of the flavors of the flavor palette that are available to us. But, you know, there, like you said, there was that sort of early wave of craft brewers that were doing those more sort of, you know, European styles. They were brewing a lot of Hefe's, they were brewing a lot of brown ales. And, you know, now I know a lot of people who think craft beer and IPA are synonyms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's crazy how far that world has come since since you started. What was that like kind of watching that develop as you became a part of that? Yeah, so really good, you know, our, our, we I wrote my business plan that we would be the first commercial brewery in America committed to brewing the majority of our recipes outside the Rheinheitsgebot and the Rheinheitsgebot's a big old German word for the Bavarian Beer Purity Act where the Bavarian government, you know, mandated you could only make beer with essentially water, yeast, hops, and barley. So right out of the gates, we were doing beers like Raison d'Etre with uh, with raisins and beet sugars, chicory stout, which was made like a New, or- New Orleans-style coffee with chicory coffee and licorice root. Uh, but it was in 99 that I basically wa- was watching a chef on a show talk about if he added little tiny pinches of crushed pepper to the soup he was making entire you know every every minute while the soup simmered that the flavor the complexity the nuance of the pepper would be woven in uh you know more 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 beautifully than if you had that same volume of pepper all at once to the simmering soup i thought huh maybe i could apply that concept to brewing because traditionally when you make uh, beers you add hops once at the beginning for bitterness and once at the end for aroma so i went and got like an old school vibrating football game and i rigged it up over my my boil kettle and put a big big bucket of pelletized hops over the football game and angled it over the boil kettle. And just by changing the, like the angle of the, f- the game, I could vibrate the pelletized hops down in a single hop stream into the top of the boiling beer for 90 minutes straight. And that's how our concept uh, for 90 minute IPA and 60 minute IPA uh, was born. That's so cool, man. That's fascinating. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so fascinating. <laughs> and, hey, oh, I forgot to say what we're, we got a really nice uh, recognition. Two years ago, that original like contraption was our vibrating football game. Hopping device was uh, brought into the permanent collection of the Smithsonian, you know, along with the what? Wright That's... Brothers plane and Apollo <laughs> Rockets. Now there's a hopping device down in Washington, D.C. That's incredible. Um, I love that you just sort of set out to you know, fly in the face of tradition and go against the German rules um, and that the whole aspect of it was driven by, uh, you know, culinary. Are you... Uh, Guys, I just got to you say fancy yourself quick. like a we, chef at home? We don't need a, a Tales of the Cocktail Crystal Plate. We need to be in the Smithsonian. That, yeah, 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 new, new goal. goal. New goal. New goal. Um, uh, do you fancy yourself sort of a home cook or a chef yourself? Uh, like, is that culinary side of you? No, I, you know, my wife. Well, or you just drew from that. Yeah, my wife Mariah is a better chef than than I. I am. Like, I wrote the original recipe or, or the original menu when we opened because we intentionally opened our brewery inside a restaurant in '95 because we were going to make these beers that were not just you know infused with culinary ingredients, but were designed to have you know all the complexity, diversity and food compatibility of the world's best wines. So we wanted to have like an open kitchen and serve the beers next to the plates of foods that they were designed uh, to go to. So food's always been kind of central to our creative journey, but personally I'm more the liquid chef and my, my wife Mariah's more, more makes the food uh, stuff. 
Well, Souther, I mean, like you, I'm sure your wheels are turning because, I mean, you used to teach yeah. in a culinary school and, you know, mm -hmm. you've, you've been all over the industry as far as that goes. I mean, have you, I mean, I know, I know I've certainly been inspired by certain dishes. I mean, I went to, uh, actually, I was just there the other day, Absinthe in, um, in San Francisco. I had this salad once that had um, pear and uh, like horseradish. And I was like, man, this is, this is a really cool combination. And so I made like a martini riff with it. You know, it, it, it had like, I did a, like a horseradish infused gin and then uh, a pair of the V and it was like, and it was amazing. It was, right. it worked as a dish and then it really shined as a, a cocktail. So, I mean, that's, that's exactly like, I, I love being inspired by culinary techniques. So Sam, that's like, I, you know, I know I'd heard that story years and years and years ago. And the reason why is because an old employee of yours, Heather, used to be our sales rep when I worked at Linnell's LTD in Brooklyn. And we used to sell the Raison d'Etre. And we also, uh, when you first came out, um, <laughs> this is a little bit not not so culinary, I guess, but maybe you can shine some light on this. You came out with a, a beer that was brewed in or aged in Palo Santo wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, most wine, beers, whiskeys are all aged in different versions of mostly uh, American or French oak. That's where, you know, most alcoholic beverages, you know, that's mm -hmm. the kind of wood. But Palos, and that throws, you know, you know, your traditional vanilla and toasty notes. Uh, whereas we found this crazy wood called Palo Santo wood uh, from Paraguay. That's totally different. It's almost incense-like, and it throws. Well, that's more what I was gonna say. I mean, like that's, spice notes, you know. Yeah, it's like my my brother got married two years ago, and in part of the like gift bag for the guests was like bundles of like sticks of Palo Santo for people to like, you know, burn in their their hotel rooms and, and like cleanse the air. So I was like this, but this was like 15 years before that became a popular like earthy hipster uh, incense move. So, yeah, like, it's just like you guys have always been like way not just ahead of the game, but way, way, way ahead of the game. Well, it's been really fun. It's like you know, in terms of where we get our creative inspiration, you know, I would say it's pretty much anywhere except the beer industry. Meaning, we try really <laughs> hard. You know, we try really hard to be pioneers instead of fast followers, and both are valid. You know, business models, but for us, the adrenaline of taking that risk and doing something new is worth, you know, the odds that for every success like a Palo Santo or a Sequench Ale that we do, we have, you know, a beer like Au Courant that we did 12 or 14 years ago that we made so much of it that we just had to give cases away to our coworkers for <laughs> months to get rid of it. People would show up at a party with a case of Au Courant and the whole room would go, ah, oh, come on. Cause everyone was so, <laughs> everyone was so sick of that beer. So they're not all successes. That's how you know you work in the industry when someone shows up and you're like, not that free alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, right. You I mean, swine. There's something to be said for, you know, um, the non-successful items in your career as an entrepreneur that lead to the successes, right? The, the old uh, quote, which is, you know, I never, I never fail. I either win or I learn, right? Surely you learn something from that, that beer, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, for sure. In fact, <laughs> we're actually bringing it back. Besides don't make this again. Oh, you're making it again. <laughs> you're bringing it back. <laughs> well, we, we just had the base run. We put it in a Belgian golden ale. And we learned that it should have just been in like a session sour base. So there we're, you we're, we're like you've said, we've learned from, the first shitty iteration and evolved it to something a little more elegant. 
You know, I, I mean, always it, noticed it, that I, though. Um, sorry, Souther, but like you know, like haven't you noticed like whenever you take like your least selling cocktail off the menu, then all of a sudden everyone wants it. Wants it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there there is that, but I, but I also think that you know. Uh, it leads you somewhere, you know, you, like you said, you, you just realized that it needed a tweak and you're going to give it that tweak and you're going to bring it back, um, in a, in a whole new way. And, and hopefully those people who had it back then will be like, Oh man, they're bringing that back, but I better try it. Cause I'm sure that they've changed it. You know, like it'll, it'll spark interest again. Right. That's the hope. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about, uh, your 26 years of off-centered adventures. You've got a book out, right? I don't even know what off-centered means in your field. <laughs> so, yeah, it's actually so because our, our, our rallying cry, you know, that's on our cases, six-pack shirts is off-centered ales for off-centered people. And that was like from our early days. We're like, okay, we know we're going to brew these big exotic, you know, beers that have unexpected ingredients. So they're not going to appeal to the average drinker. So let's just lean into that and say we're going to do these exotic beers for uh, a niche audience and thankfully that niche audience has grown and in terms of what we make it's certainly grown since those humble beginnings as the smallest brewery in the country as well because within years of opening we morphed our rallying cry from off-centered ales to off-centered people to off-centered goodness for off-centered people because uh 20 years ago like five years after we opened we opened one of the one of the first craft distilleries in America and started making gins and rums and vodkas uh, and brandies in a corner of our restaurant to complement our beers soon after that. And we've always been in the restaurant business. And then soon after that, we opened the first beer themed hotel in the coastal town here of Lewis, Delaware. Um, and, and, you know, in addition to like collaborations with the Grateful Dead and Pearl Jam and clothing companies like New, Bel uh, New, New Balance and Woolrich. So we kind of really do believe in this off-centered, you know, creative ideal, but that we can apply it to these complementary industries to our, you know, the heart of our business, which is, which is beer. Yeah. You said something off the air. I've always considered myself a serial entrepreneur, but you, you said it better. What, what did you call me and yourself? Uh, ADD. Oh, creative ADD. Creative yeah. ADD. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you're all over the place. You're you're making beer. You're distilling spirits. You're running restaurants. You're making these collabs. This is uh, pretty incredible. How do you? Where do you find the sort of, I don't know, inspiration and frankly the energy to keep up with it all? Well, I mean, that's you know, you, you you're standing on the shoulder of, of giants, right? So, I mean, there's uh, you know, the, we have hundreds of coworkers here and. That's probably the most cathartic, you know, opportunity I think we have as entrepreneurs. We're growing companies, especially those of us that are better at like the creative aspects of conceiving something than we, those of us that are better at making it and selling it every day and distributing it. So, you know, I've just surrounded myself with really talented people who have sort of complementary superpowers to my limited superpowers. So, you know, it's usually on a bike ride or a paddle board ride in the morning that I have an idea for a, a beer or a cocktail or an event. And I just kind of say it into my phone and keep going on my way. And then I turn that into an email, send it out to whatever coworkers I think are the best suited to help me try to, you know, change it from a work of fiction into a work of uh, nonfiction. And then that, that just becomes like a, a group effort. So, uh, we are able to do a lot of different things because we got a lot of very complimentary, talented people, you know, on the on the dogfish journey alongside my wife Mariah and I. You know, there's something else we we should talk about because it's so timely and seasonal, um, and it also has to deal with your kind of experimentation and and innovation. 
you guys started in 95, correct? Yep. Um, and, you know, it. we're in uh, pumpkin spice season. Just <laughs> we're in decorative gourd and pumpkin <laughs> spice season. Um, my season. My, uh, my, I call him my life coach, my, my really good friend, Tiki Adam, actually. Tiki Adam Colasar. He actually has a great bar in his home in Brooklyn. And he always has these seasonal beer gatherings and then like a seasonal uh, cocktail gathering. And of course the one in the fall, uh, you know, everyone brings a, a, an interesting beer and, and this is the season for pumpkin beers. You always, every year you always have pumpkin beers coming to the party and there are always so many more, but it's important to note that even before the pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks and, and a lot of these other, you guys started making the pumpkin P U N K I N pumpkin L back in 95. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned we, we do have a book that, that's coming out in a few weeks, uh, just called The Dogfish Head Book, <laughs> you know, 26 years of, you know, our off-centered adventure, adventure. And it was kind of modeled off the great book that the Beastie Boys did a few years ago, just called The Beastie Boys Book. So it's really like design heavy. It includes the voices of other artists, musicians that they interacted with. And it sort of tells the chronology, you know, in a chronology chronological fashion their creative journey and we kind of use that template for the dogfish head book so it essentially starts with my first batches of homebrewed pumpkin ale um, you know me bringing those with my business plan as a 24 year old kid to bankers saying hey i'm going to do these culinary infused beers here try this homebrew one i made with pumpkin and allspice and brown sugar and nutmeg so literally you know, I, I was like full on like Martha Stewart mode using like a potato <laughs> stamp to put the original Dogfish logo <laughs> on these bottles of homebrew pumpkin beer that I was bringing around, you know, Delaware trying to raise money for Dogfish and then finally raised the money. And then, uh, yeah, 95, the first fall we were open was our first commercial batch of pumpkin ale. And like you said, it was kind of before that the pumpkin beer movement got so big that you know, I knew it got. I knew it was huge when a few years ago I passed a Jiffy Lube, and the marquee side side in October said, "Come on in for your pumpkin spiced oil change." <laughs> <laughs> right, the, the zeitgeist has taken over uh, every every possible aspect. Right. Um, I mean, that's pretty incredible. That again, culinary uh, influence drove you to that, plus your desire to kind of break the rules. Uh, sort of drove you to this place and then you pioneered these things. Um, I think this is a great time to take a quick break. We'll come back and keep talking to Sam from Dogfish Head uh, about all the great things that you're doing. Stay tuned, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? Otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program, this rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese with intense requirements to succeed. 
Our master cheesemaker program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. And we are back. You were listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're talking with Sam Colagioni of Dogfish Head. And before the break, we touched on the prevalence of pumpkin spice in every single aspect of our lives during this festive decorative gourd season that we're hurtling towards. And I, I, I wanted to, Sam, just kind of like take a moment to really just live on this third rail of craft brewing that we have, because there are so many very strong opinions about what should and should not go into beer around in the pumpkin spice sphere. And as sort of you were mentioning one of the original pioneers of the style, I kind of wanted to ask you where you thought it's gone and have we gone too far and can we pull it back? And what is sort of your vision for like an ideal pumpkin beer if there is one? Well, you know, I think that, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beer holder and that's why there's many, <laughs> many different iterations of pumpkin beers. But I think the reason ours has grown and been so strong for 26 years is that it does kind of stand out um, before there was even a crowded field. You know, now you can go to these spice, you know, factories and, and chemistry places and get, you know, tinctures of real, you know, real and artificial essences of pumpkin spice but for us we're using and have since 95 real pumpkin meat in with the barley we're using real brown sugar fresh crushed allspice cinnamon etc so i think when people try ours and ours is a little bit bigger seven percent abv so kind of walking the line traditional beer and wine abv so that presents with more like intensity and awesome food partner um your your point about has it jumped the the sharkers you know i would say there wasn't there was definitely consumer driven sort of darwinistic pullback from a broad range of of pumpkin ales maybe five or six years ago and then those that kind of made it through were kind of still had opportunities to grow, but there were too many in the field. Frankly, the thing that pisses me off the most is how, you know, seasonal beers get released early and earlier every year so that you can find, you know, pumpkin beers on the shelves, you know, July 4th weekend. And uh, so I, even though we have to release ours ahead of Labor Day, so it ships in August, I always like make sure I never have one of, I never try my first of the year's pumpkin beer until the Monday of Labor Day. Because I'm just like, this was not meant to be drunk, you know, on Independence Day, the style of beer. Well, and I mean, plus, if you're using actual pumpkins, like those things don't, aren't going to be ready in June when you would have to brew that to get it to the shelves on July 4th weekend. Yep, exactly. So a lot of them are not made with pumpkin meat. They might have, you know, spices people uh, associate from a olfactory sense with pumpkin, but they're, they're not often made with actual pumpkin. Well, I mean, well, you kind of paved the the way for doing it right, and and also, I mean, like, even go back to some of the other marks, like sixty minute, ninety minute IPA, like, there's a really pioneering East Coast IPA, and and also, I mean, like, even going back to the culinary thing, I mean, like with the the hazy O IPA, um, there's oat milk in it, right? Isn't it like, uh, is it the first nationally yeah. distributed oat milk centric hazy IPA? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and that, again, that one came more, and I know you guys cover all kinds of drinks on your podcast, but that was that was kind of came out of the barista culture. Yeah. You know, I was at this hipster. I, I wish I remember the name. Some hipster indie coffee place in Philly, and I was, you know, doodling on my phone. And when I ordered, I, I said, "Hey, I'll take a cappuccino and uh, some milk." And he's like, "Oh, dude, you know, typical." what you'd picture tat and what must mustachioed awesome bar, barista is like, dude, you got to try it with oat milk. It's so smooth and soft. Gives it such a great mouthfeel. And so I tried so it. So Damon. And, Damon was your barista. Is what you're <laughs> my profile, my profile. Yeah, Damon. Yeah. So, so, so at any rate, I fell in love with it. Literally by the time I was halfway through that oat milk infused cappuccino, I'd Google searched and already sent an email to what was kind of perceived as the most high quality, purest oat milk, uh, uh, producer called Elmhurst out of upstate New York. We solidified that relationship and started doing test batches. And almost all hazy IPAs, and as I know a lot of your listeners that are into beer know, hazy IPAs are the fastest growing beer style uh, in America. Uh, and then, you know, but you look at a, a general consumer goods trends, oat milk or plant-based milks are absolutely on fire too. Sure. Uh, and I was just thinking to myself, well, oats are, you know, regular, regular malted oats, brewer's oats are already kind of the centerpiece of hazy IPA recipes in terms of what gives them their, their haze. So I just thought, okay, well, maybe we can go one place further and actually infuse ours with real, real oat milk and get that sort of soft, silky mouthfeel that you get from oat milk, but in a, in a hazy IPA format. I mean, the, my my favorite part of this story, other than everything I feel like I just learned about hazy IPAs, which I didn't know any of, is that you seem to be in um, sort of beginner mind about your life. You were just at a coffee shop hanging out, and and this guy offered you something, and you took it and and turned that into an entrepreneurial opportunity. You 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 just you're willing to receive. It seems like. Yeah, and you know that's it's, and sometimes I think my my our brewers here cringe when I come to them with an idea of something that hasn't been done before. Or, and sometimes they're like, "We got to design the brewing system on the rooftop in New York City at Italy at mid at you know Midtown." And I'm good friends with the Italian family that owns Italy and some of the Italian brewers as well. And I was like, "Oh, we got to do a beer for the winter up there called Garlic Breath, where we take garlic." And add it the whole breadth b r e a d t h of production, <laughs> and so I just really wanted to make a beer called Garlic Breath, and so I made this nice roasty dark porter with garlic, and uh, suffice to say, it was not not a very good seller. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but as an Italian American, I freaking loved it. But I mean, but really I, garlic at, was coming out your pores. Well, at the same time, I if I saw that on a menu, I'd be like very intrigued and, and likely I'd have to have at least one. I'd be like, well, let me give, let me give, let me give that a shot. Yeah. Good. You know? Good. That's next, so, when, next fall, it's it. all about the garlic beer, man. Yeah, pumpkin, pumpkin spice latte, trends. move aside. Right? Anytime I read a menu, I'm always looking for the kind of oddball ingredient or, well, in this case, off-center, I guess you say. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, anytime I'm reading a cocktail menu, it's like, all right, well, it's got gin, it's got this, and then it's like, oh, there's garlic in it. Well, <laughs> yeah, I haven't had that before, so I'm going to order that. And I, uh, I would have been all about that, especially yeah. you, like you said, it was in a stout. Yeah, it was in a roasty dark porter. And porter, uh, you know, yeah. thinking about it from a cocktail perspective too. You know, we we have a sort of a geographically enamored seafood restaurant that we own here. That's kind of the the, the center stage for our our cocktail program for our distillery called Chesapeake in Maine. And we had this uh, 
you know, the mignette sauce that we did there was made with this vinegar. And I one day dumped that vinegar, you know, into one of our cocktails. Uh, and, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. So then I started learning more about that shrub tradition. Right. And uh, one of the canned cocktails we recently released is a blueberry uh, shrub vodka soda. And that one came from playing around with the different mignette sauces that we do with our oysters. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of like really cool crossover can be found when you when you when you when you have your eyes open and you're looking for it you know yeah you guys were talking about bitters earlier Uh, you know we're we're a big fan of different kinds of bitters and what that can do for different kinds of drinks yeah of course i mean that's my that's my wheelhouse um we wanted to hear a little bit more though about your uh merger with the boston beer company back in 2019 you know back in the before times um how did that come about and what has that done for the company at large yeah, so I mean, so for your for your listenership, there is actually a definition of independent craft breweries in America. We have this one trade group called the Brewers Association that the vast majority of the 9,000 brewers in our country are members of that trade group. And I was on the board of that trade organization along with the founder of New Belgium, the founder of Sierra, and the founder of Sam Adams, Jim Cook. Uh, over 15 years ago, I was on, started my time on that board, maybe – uh, 10, seven years ago, we came up with that definition. So Jim and I became buddies in that period. And Dogfish was the first brewery that Sam Adams in America ever did a collaboration beer with. And I was up in Boston brewing that with him and his coworkers. And I called my wife back in Delaware. I'm like, oh my God, they're just like us. They love to have fun. They love to compete. They love to, uh, you know, it's a real meritocracy. Anyone from any college or walk of life can grow at that company. It's not, you know, about you know, your, your degrees, et cetera. So it just felt very comfortable. And then as the craft brewing industry, frankly, a few years ago started to slow down and this whole concept of the beyond beer category, whether it's seltzers or canned cocktails, and the four of us were talking about the canned cocktail phenomena at the front of the show before we went on. And so Mariah and I saw that slowdown happening and we're like, hey, we really should think about aligning with another American brewery that's in the definition of indie craft that has more national sales, you know, resources than we do, uh, and has complementary products in their portfolio. So, Dogfish, you know, specializes in IPAs, culinary centric beers, session sours, our sequentials, the best selling sour beer in America, canned cocktails, spirits. Whereas Boston Beer, wow. you know, has Sam Adams, which is lager centric. It has uh, truly the fastest growing, you know, seltzer in America. It has the biggest cider brand, Angry Orchard in America. So it was a really complimentary culture and a really complimentary portfolio that led us to to do the merger. I mean, that's incredible. It sounds like you're kind of covering all the bases uh, and all of the uh, sort of fastest growing category bases as well. Yeah, it's it's been a really fun fun journey for us so far, and the and the the. The love of innovation, you would think, you know, as one of the biggest American-owned breweries, we'd kind of be set in our ways. But the spirit of innovation is is just incredible and the pace at which we innovate. And we're lucky that we have all these small, you know, retail locations like our Angry Orchard location, uh, you know, up in Walden outside of on the Hudson or Dogfish just opened a brew pub in Miami. Uh uh, we have the uh, Angel City Brewery in LA is ours, and we just announced today that we're opening a truly seltzer R and D experience, consumer facing experience there in LA. So we have all these small retail locations where we can, you know, take 
take big risks with by doing small batches and sure. getting immediate consumer feedback and then those are the ideas that the best of them get extrapolated up for national release you know sometime in the future well and that's it's that's like a, really it's like a built-in just, think tank that's amazing yeah yep yep for sure yeah, and I, I love the idea that you're sort of pushing back against this trend that's been happening uh, largely out of sight of most consumers of craft beer of the, you know, the, the consolidation of the industry under the roofs of a lot of, you know, larger companies. Like, I don't think people realize that, you know, Elysian and Goose Island and Wicked Weed and Platform and, you know, a, a bunch of other ones that I, I, I'm not going to take the time to name or all, you know, if you buy them, all your money is going to Budweiser. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was really interesting that the two of you, that you and uh, Jim from Boston beer kind of looked at this consolidation and said, well, you know, if, if we can't beat them, join them, but let's do it in a way that still honors, you know, the, the principles that we set out to brew under in the first place, 26 years ago. Is that, is that a correct read of the situation? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's interesting that, you know, consumers think craft beer is ubiquitous and it all comes from these small little neighborhood American companies. But it's a pretty effed up stat that of the – there's almost 9,000. You can say fucked up on oh, this show. Oh, there you go. It's there okay. you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did. So, But it's a pretty fucked up stat when you realize the 9,000 true indie American craft breweries that fit our definition uh, – Collectively, all 9,000 of us share less than 20% of all the beer sold in America. That means like 85% of the beer sold in our country comes from these international conglomerates. Uh, sometimes they're marketed as if they're from little, little brewer, you know, indie American craft breweries. And that's really for the consumer to find out and decide if they care or not, or maybe they just want cheap, cheap beer. And that's okay too. But it is a really interesting dynamic that still in America, the majority of the beer is not coming from American companies. So what does that mean for sort of the future of, you know, for someone, if you were to give advice to someone who like you was, you know, trotting down to the New York library to write out a business plan after graduating from college, like, you know, what, what would you say to them as they enter this, this new world where, you know, there, there is, there are a lot of big players and it's a lot of consolidation, you know, what, what is the best thing that a small brewer can do to make it under those conditions? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I would say first you got to start from a position of don't don't enter this industry unless you're going to be committed to world class quality, consistency, and being well differentiated. And I think the third one's under siege even more than the first two with a lot of you know samey products that that come to market these days, even compared to 10, 10 years ago. I'd also say when you write a business plan, don't figure out how big you can start, figure out how small you can start and still be sustainable. I've seen too many entrepreneurs in our space, you know, come in with, you know, you know, bank money and all kinds of investors. And then you, you're, you're having to make these decisions that are short term based on, you know, making a bank payment or paying out an investor. So figuring out a model where you can start super small. So that often means that the ideal starting model is a tasting room, like a tap room brewery, because then a, you're keeping a hundred percent of the retail price of the beer that you make. Cause you're selling it directly across the, your own bar to the consumer. Whereas most top hundred volume 
craft breweries in America sell the majority of their beer through the three-tier system, through a distributor, onto a retailer, which means two other commercial entities take, you know, 40, 50, 60% of the cost of that pint by the time it gets to the consumer's hand. So that business model is starting really small, direct to consumers, not only economically, uh, a strong model, but it's how you can really build a brand and sort of hone your brand voice by engaging directly with the consumer to describe what's so special about the stuff that you make. Yeah. And people want to, they want to go on the ride with you, you know, like I know, you know, even like for us being like independent bar owners and, you know, working with small brands, like, you know, everyone wants to feel like they're, I, I certainly want to feel like I'm part of a small brand as a consumer, you know, and then like, I think that's some really great advice on direct consumer too. I mean, like, cause like, like you said, like all that, all the profits go into your pocket or into your bank account. And then you get to use that and flip it and then start growing that way rather than waiting for investors to come through. I think it's yeah. very smart. Yeah. And, and it's getting so hard to get on the shelves at a, a whole foods, you know, or, you know, onto the click screen on a, on a drizzly. If you can prove consumer demand, you know, for your for your stuff direct with the consumer, then you've got more leverage when you go in and talk to big distributors and retailers because right. you've got a track record. You know, totally. Man, this has been fascinating. Uh, yeah, agreed. I like the the whole show has been it, like this is one of my favorite episodes we've done in, in well, a while. Um, well, thanks, Jens. Yeah, this is very cool. And like the the thing is, it's also. Uh, you know, this is your your fourth book that's that's coming out now. Um, I would highly recommend to our listeners to go check out these books. Um, I've seen a couple of them, but uh, I'm really excited to see this next one that's coming out over here. I uh, want to make sure I give equal props to my co-author. So my wife Mariah uh, yeah. wrote it with us, and this amazing dude Andrew Greeley, who runs the Dogfish Hotel, uh, wrote it. So it was really all three of us that put the story together. Awesome. Incredible, incredible! Even that you just said, Dogfish Hotel. Like you just, yeah. you've just, just done everything you could possibly do in the in the sort of hospitality sector. Um, it's it's amazing. How can our listeners sort of follow along and and see what what's uh, what's coming next from Dogfish Head? Well, I'd say you know uh, the easiest thing is go to dogfish.com or check out our YouTube channel. Like we we do a lot of our own you know storytelling with our in house kind of video. Uh, expert Greg and myself. And so that's probably the best way to, to learn more about what's going on at Dogfish. And if you go to dogfish.com, another cool feature uh, is we have a, a place you can enter your, uh, your listeners can enter their zip code and uh, it, it'll tell you the closest, you know, retailer to you that carries whatever oh, yeah. dogfish. The fish finder. Yeah, the, the fish finder. Yeah, exactly. The fish finder. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, this has been amazing. Um, again, if I, I can't imagine, I mean, I, I know we've been talking small, uh, but at the same time, can't imagine too many of our listeners haven't seen or tried Dogfish Head. It's some really iconic craft brewers, uh, brews in the the biz, and uh, yeah, I mean, like again, like I, it's it's pumpkin ale season, so I can't wait to get get my hands on some of that too, um, man. I, you know, one more thing I just want to say here too, is that it's not often that we have a brewer on the show. I mean, the, the way 
I started this show is that I wanted to talk to everyone about everything drinks. That includes tea and coffee, you know, anything that's liquid that you can consume. Like, I really want to talk about all of it. But, like, it's not often that we have a show about beer because, honestly, I mean, like, there are a lot of other shows about beer. But, like, it takes it takes someone very innovative and creative and, you know, off-center uh, for us to kind of uh, make a show out of it for the speakeasy. But, I mean, like, this was just awesome. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. This, is, this has been perfect. So I can't wait to... Uh, Again, can't wait to uh, get the new book, and I uh, can't wait to crack open a pumpkin now. And I just thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, absolutely, Sam. I would also like to maybe extend the invitation to have you come back because we talked a lot about, of course, beer and your yeah. other uh, entrepreneurial endeavors. We touched just very briefly on your RTD canned cocktails, but I'd like to get you back on and talk about this incredible spirits list that yeah. you have as well. It's pretty uh, diverse, you know, a, a roasted peanut vodka, an orange mango citrus vodka um you've got a gin like you're you're out there cranking out some really interesting and innovative looking stuff and i'd love to talk to you more about about your distillates next time we have you on that sounds great to me so yeah man let's do it all right well that's it for the speakeasy this week check out heritage radio network for many more programs like this one click on the beating heart to donate to the station and until next time cheers everyone cheers buddy cheers, cheers. guys thank you for having me absolutely so you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues. That's him. It's gonna get you The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.